Hello and welcome once again to Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and as always, I am pleased and I'm honored to be your host and your commentator for another of our commentary shows. One of the shows that we have up on air, online, 24-7, here at www.centerlefttalkradio, one word, centerlefttalkradio.com. You can pick us up when you go to that site, the aforementioned uh, homepage of our, of our website there. Uh, the first link will give you our, uh, our podcast feed. The second is to something that we call our radio loop, which is precisely what it sounds like. It's a loop of this show playing on a separate computer, and when you hit that link, you pick up the show wherever it happens to be in that link, kind of like the way you might have listened to the radio uh, in the car or at home when you wanted to hear rambling with gambling in the morning. There goes a little self-dating. But but the good thing about this, the difference is that when the show ends in a radio loop, it starts over again so you could find what you missed. And hopefully there'll be a desire for that because we'll be holding your attention. And I have a very strong sense that that's precisely what we'll be doing today. We're going to have uh, another of what we've referred to as Noble Hearts Forums today. And the term... Noble Hearts, full forms, pretty straightforward. Noble Hearts uh, is a reference to words in a high school song. And it was the uh, school song of a place called Regis High School, is the song of a place called Regis High School, been around for well over 100 years now. And uh, we've had members of a particular class, of which I am one, and at least one of our members today, uh, one of our panelists, uh, is as well, uh, get on center-left radio and discuss issues of some import. Well, the obvious discussable issue today uh, would be, it being the, uh, the anniversary, the first anniversary, hopefully not the first of, Others, but the first anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of November in 2022. Now, as it happens, we did a Noble Hearts Forum not long before that date. In fact, on February 6th uh, of 2022, we had a forum that included, as I recall, uh, four guys from our class, including myself, And I think we had one uh, Russian expat on that show also. And at the time, Russia was literally at the, uh, well, to to quote, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, a a great piece of music, or a part of a great piece of music, at the gates of Kiev. Uh, And, and, uh, well, it's a photo, it's actually a painting, come to think of it. Uh, And the thought that was presented during that show was that, Nah, they're they're not really going to do this. This is a this is an effort to uh, uh, reactivate the Minsk Accords. It's it's their way of uh, ensuring that the things as they are right now will stay. They would never attack. They probably won't. And even if they did, it's none of our damned business. That was the general attitude at that time. Now. 
the and and the attitude I, I must say was two two of the uh, two of the participants back then on February sixth of twenty two, uh, both of whom uh, I, I regret to say are not available today, but uh, they had a very strong sense that that's how things would work out. Well, one of the participants on that show who is with us today, uh, Dr. Charles Webel, had a a different take, or at least had sort of a parenthetical, sort of a, a, a little additional thought about what was possible or not possible after, uh, after that show, or what might happen after, uh, after the 6th of uh, February of 2022. And I'm fortunate to have him with us today, as is Dr. Stephen Bronner. Let me, let me just do a little quick uh, housekeeping here. Charles Webel, Dr. Webel, is currently professor and guarantor of the School of International Affairs at the State University of New York in Prague. He's a five-time Fulbright scholar, has published 13 books many of which deal with issues of war and peace. He's now working on volume two of his three-volume, three-book trilogy, modestly entitled The Fate of This World and the Future of Humanity, as well as a novel, Academia, that's with three Ks as opposed to the normal two Ks. Uh, Dr. Charles Bronner, Oh, my goodness, did I? Oh, dear. Oh dear. We'll, we'll, we'll work on that one in a minute. <laughs> Dr. Stephen Bronner, sorry, <laughs> is uh, with Rutgers University, co-director of the International Council for Diplomacy and Dialogue, uh, Board of Governors Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Political Science, and Affiliate Distinguished Fellow at the Center for the Study of Genocide and Human Rights. Uh, Stephen was not with us on that original show. Stephen, you've been on other shows with us uh, since then, other, other Noble Hearts forms, but... Uh, what I wanted to do is pick up where we left off on February 6th. Charles, you made a statement at the end of that show, again, where everybody was largely poo-pooing the notion that Russia would go in, or if they did, damn it to hell, what would we be doing and why should we be involved? Do you recall the substance of what you suggested at the end of that program? Yes, if memory hasn't completely abandoned me at this late <laughs> stage of life, I said something to the effect, what if these guys and the so-called experts are all wrong? And what if, in fact, Putin does have a plan, however flawed it might be, to try to invade and occupy Ukraine? What will be the rest response? The yeah. rest response is likely to engage in the biggest war in Europe since 1945. Yeah. Which is exactly what we have. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you could, if you could go back a year ago to that, that grouping and advise people a bit more stridently about what could happen and knowing what we know a year later, what might your advice have been? <laughs> <laughs> or would you have changed your opinion? I, I recall that you, you, you did have a strong sense of wanting to find, obviously, given your background, peaceful solutions. But has this past year changed your notion of what the extent and possibilities are of peaceful solutions, given what has happened with Russia and Ukraine? It hasn't changed my idea 
that as the Chinese have proposed and others have suggested, including some notorious American military hawks, the way out of this war is most likely negotiations. And the question is, when and how? Yeah. And if negotiations had been seriously attempted between, on the one hand, NATO and the U.S. and Russia a little over a year ago, I'm not saying the war could have been avoided, but at least it would have, to cite the cliche, given peace a chance. Peace was never given a chance, either by Russia or by NATO. And to this day, neither Russia nor NATO nor Ukraine evidences any serious commitment to negotiations in which compromise, which is the essence of negotiations, is possible. Um, the readers, the listeners to the show should know, since then I've been engaged in a research project involving current attitudes, perceptions, and misperceptions of Russians and Ukrainians, most of whom are expatriates, but not all. I had an interview last week with a young woman in Odessa, and mm. I have an interview tomorrow um, with, um, on Sunday, I should say, with a young woman in St. Petersburg. And although these are relatively liberal from the West point of view, uh, mostly expatriates, they all indicate the same kind of political sentiments of their nations, meaning the Ukrainians unanimously think that the conditions for peace on their terms are the withdrawal of Russia from all occupied territory mm. and a change in the Russian government. And they all unanimously say, without those two preconditions, negotiations are useless because whatever is decided in negotiation is something Putin will renege on. And the Russians say the same thing, surprisingly, perhaps, <laughs> that the end of the war can only happen if we get out of Ukraine and if Putin is no longer the new Tsar. That sounds nice, but I think this is the same kind of wishful thinking that occupied the minds of most Western analysts a year ago when they thought Putin won't dare do it and Ukraine uh, can resist or not resist well enough on its own. Well, unless there is some give to both sides, negotiations, if they happen at all, will not result in anything more than a ceasefire and the war will go on almost endlessly as a kind of rerun of World War One with nuclear weapons. Stephen, do you agree that uh, the Ukrainian position as it's been put out so far is really, uh, Charles would seem to be suggesting that it's actually a, a detriment, it's, it's, a, it's an avoidance almost of the only reasonable way to a lasting peace. Are the Ukrainians being unreasonable in their current uh, rhetoric, if nothing else? Obviously, they're being rather adamant in their, in their actions, supported by NATO. But is their rhetoric that detrimental, given the Russians and the Russian activity at this point? Well, uh, in, in my view, uh, in both instances, in Russia and in Ukraine, uh, basically, victory in this war is uh, 
I should say, the is on the table for its leaders. There's been a sharp disconnect between the interests of the sovereigns and the interests of the citizenry. Hmm. Uh, I think that's crucial. Uh, Russia's being drained, and uh, Ukraine, of course, is being completely obliterated yeah. um, simultaneously. Now, both uh, Putin and uh, Zelensky, in, in my view, uh, have put forward demands, I think Charles uh, summarized them well, uh, that are not achievable. And in a certain way, you don't have negotiations if your uh, demands have already been been uh, met. Yeah. Uh, these, I think, in both instances, are ways of uh, simply delaying or making excuses for not negotiating. Um, the uh, they're really flip sides of the same coin, um, and one is no more detrimental to to. Uh, uh, negotiations than the other. Well, are, are, but wouldn't that suggest? I'm just following your 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 reasoning here. If this is really now personal, it's personal between Putin and I gather. If you want to uh, well, limit it to Zelensky, clear. yeah. Let me be clear. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is probably something personal between them, but that's not what. Uh, that's not the key. What I'm suggesting is that the interests of the. Uh, of these leaders are identified by them with the interests of their nations. In other words, they are the sovereigns. If they are toppled or if they don't win the war, that means that their nations are lost. And uh, that identification, I think, is an enormous mistake. Yeah, I, 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 I would imagine it, it, it sounds as though, again, I, I, I see this as a personalization and if they, if they, if something happens to their their military effort, not only the country goes, they go. But there's, it, it's it's like there's a domino effect starting with these leaders. How do how do you get the interests of the people in these countries to to supersede that of the egos? If I'm saying this correctly, of the leaders, I throw this to both of you. My organization, which is the International Council uh, for Diplomacy and Dialogue, which I uh, uh, co-direct with Eric Goslin, we've been very involved in uh, trying to develop uh, peace plans. And uh, we've worked with uh, actual organizations. We've worked in concert with the European Center for Democracy and Development, and the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and the Ukrainian National Institute for Politics, and the National Platform for Reconciliation and Unity in Ukraine, which is composed of a number of civil society uh, NGOs. We developed a, a declaration. You can see the full version uh, on the um, European Organization for Security and Cooperation, the OSCE uh, a website. We presented that at those meetings, uh, in, or I presented it at those meetings in Warsaw that took place in September of, of uh, 
of last year. Mm. And um, how should I say it's, I can, I think I can say that some of the points that were raised are uh, in the discussion. I think that's fair to say between uh, uh, different ministries. Um, I can give you, uh, I, I can give you some very, very basic uh, points. Yeah, I mean, please. A long declaration, uh, which is, uh, and what's important here is I don't think these basic things, which I'm going to mention now, uh, will change. I mean, uh, geopolitical realities don't simply disappear. It seems to me, first of all, uh, maybe I should say it in principle. First of all, Russia has to be a left with an exit strategy. Uh, if I'm correct about the interests of uh, Putin's identification of his interests with those of the nation, if we don't do that, uh, there's going to be uh, quite a cataclysm, uh, perhaps of nuclear import. Uh, it's clear to me also that uh, Ukraine will need to assume the status of a nuclear, a non-nuclear neutral state. That uh, its ability to join, that it's, uh, it will not join NATO as a full member. But per permanently not, not join NATO as a full well, member. It, it, it could join as an associate member. I mean, there were various ways to negotiate. Yeah, that. yeah. Uh, but it's going to receive uh, permission to join the EU. Yeah. And uh, here's the, the, the crucial uh, element. I personally uh, think that terminating aid to Ukraine is unthinkable. And uh, I actually think that uh, uh, President Biden has not been, uh, has been very... Uh, sophisticated in his approach to this because American troops aren't involved mm -hmm. and troops aren't involved. In other words, it's just money and arms at this point. However, uh, the amount of aid that we've given, that and the, uh, especially that the United States has given, can't go on indefinitely. And there's going to have to be some shift uh, that takes place. And that shift is going to be that or I think it should be, is that uh, aid will continue uh, insofar as uh, Ukraine meets conditions in the pursuit in the pursuit of negotiations. In uh, other words, it's going to have to be linked to uh, negotiation. In the uh, same vein, sanctions on Russia can be lifted insofar as it it does that. Uh, I have no doubt that there's going to have to be a monitoring of uh, the peace yeah. involving independent international agencies. And I sincerely believe that under these conditions of almost tribal warfare, all the participants are going to have to take place in, uh, are going to have to participate in the negotiations. This is where civil society can enter, insofar as uh, we. Uh, it's insofar as this is going to be a very complicated negotiation process with multiple participants. <laughs>
it's possible that coalitions of uh, independent entities from civil society in both nations can participate. Let's throw another party in there. And, th and thank you for all that. That really actually clarifies a hell of a lot in my own mind on this. Good. Let's add the Chinese. The Chinese came out with a statement the other day uh, which seemed to say that, well, it's what it said and what it, what it means is the, is the question, I suppose, that the Russians should stop their aggression, that there should be uh, negotiations, that uh, they should uh, uh, apparently, I think they're trying to say, get back into the, uh, stop suspending their participation in the START Treaty and uh, a number of other things that would all seem to be going in the direction you were suggesting. Are the Chinese a good actor in this situation? Do, can we categorize them one way or the other based on what we see? Charles, I'm curious about that. Uh, I'd like to, as the Chinese would say, uh, go back uh, a step. There you go. Possibly to move two steps forward. I didn't hear or I was engaged in my own little altercation with my Siberian occupier a minute ago. <laughs> I didn't hear from Stephen's uh, uh, summary Again, I may have missed it. If I did, then please uh, fill me in. What to do about the most important issue, which is Crimea and Donbass? Uh, uh, and that, that's, that is an excellent question. And to be truthful, uh, on the, in the declaration we made, uh, the Donbass, I think, is going to have to be tabled. That's the, that's the least possible point of negotiation. You don't start with the most difficult, you start with the most simple. Uh, but that's a, that's, a, that's a very good point. I think that in the, in the end result, uh, Crimea is going to have to remain with, uh, going to have to remain with Russia. And with regard to the uh, Donbasses, both of you know, there is it's a it's a very very complicated situation because there's a virtual civil war within the war in uh, in the Donbas region, which, by the way, uh, we very I think at the end of the day is far more symbolic in its importance than economic or geopolitical. Let me say this nicely: the uh, the Donbas. From my experience, I've been to Ukraine now uh, uh, a few times, and I've had a bit, some interaction with the uh, with Donbas activists, the uh, Ukrainian uh, National Institute. This is not exactly the most industrially developed area of the world, mm. if I can put it gently. Uh, and it, as I say, this has been a a long-standing bone of contention, but not for economic reasons that I can see anyway. Uh, uh, I don't know how you feel about that, Charles. But I think it's an issue of ethno-nationalism. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I, that's and, exactly right. And now, so we just moved up to compromise. Right, but uh, all the Ukrainians I talk to are unanimous in that Negotiating Crimea is, and negotiating Donbass, unless Ukraine wins, are non-starters. Right. I agree with that. That's why we put it as a, that's why we believe that it has to be tabled. Uh, that's, not the, uh, that's not the place to begin. 
Now, as for the Chinese role, yeah. uh, China has huge leverage economically. Mm -hmm. The reconstruction of Ukraine is going to hinge, of course, on the European Union and the United States. But the Chinese could be brought in if they got something for it, like the development of the Ukrainian National Railroad, which having taken it, I can tell you, is also not up to uh, modern standards. Uh, electricity power grid was never a shining example of Thomas Alva Edison's dream of the electrification of the world. These are two areas in which China reigns supreme. And these are two areas in which the so-called Silk Road, Silk Road and Belt Initiative could be extended to Ukraine without too much of a problem going through Turkey or uh, some other neighboring region, not called Russia, of which there are a number. So if the Chinese thought, seriously, hey, there's a business opportunity here, I think they could put economic leverage on both parties, not necessarily to give up their most fervent desires, which in Russia's case is, as Steve pointed out, retention of Crimea, and in Ukraine's case is the exercise of its sovereignty is kind of a what I call a Quebec solution. That is the Donbass, which is actually two oblasti, two districts, um, could have a kind of federation status equivalent to that of a Swiss canton or of Quebec in Canada. Crimea is gone. I agree with Steve about that. Crimea is Russian, its history is Russian, its people are Russian, its culture is Russian. It was a gift that Khrushchev made in a, right. you know, an almost silly gesture um, because he had worked and lived in Ukraine for a long time mm. uh, when Ukraine was uh, a Soviet socialist state or republic and not an independent country. So he just thought he was transferring one part of the same country to another part of the same country. I think that's a point that's, that's, that is not understood and, and, and certainly doesn't show up in, in any conversations that I'm listening to, uh, not even not often, not at all. That's a very, that's a very interesting uh, uh, argument. I actually hadn't, hadn't thought of that, but I think that's a really great idea. But... but uh, I think, though, there's, a, there's an, a, another possibility. Charles's uh, sensible argument uh, means that, the, uh, that China would uh, privilege its economic uh, interests, which it tends to do in foreign policy. However, it also seems to me that uh, there's a more dangerous possibility, which is that... Um, given the chip war that's taking place and the uh, competition over semiconductors and the U.S. Uh, uh, and uh, its claims to Taiwan and the islands surrounding it, I think that it, it may very well view, uh, China may very well view Russia as its only major ally against what it sees as uh, American hegemony. Now, it seems to me that one of the dangers of this war and one of the reasons uh, uh, for trying to short-circuit it beyond all the others is it seems to me two blocks are forming. 
on the one hand, the United States, NATO, Ukraine, and other minor minor states. On the other hand, China, Iran, North Korea, Russia, uh, the stands in uh, Central Asia, and these, uh, especially South Africa also, uh, many of these states are helping Russia uh, circumvent sanctions. You know, Russian, uh, the Russian G- GDP is actually 3% positive. They, it was expected that it would be 3% negative, but it's the opposite. And uh, Russia uh, itself here, I think uh, Charles is quite right in a, in a way, uh, Russia offers incredible investment opportunities to China. And I, my own bet is that it's going to become more involved in militarily aiding uh, China. Although I think what Charles laid out is exactly uh, the kind of position uh, that progressives and social democrats should put forward. And on that rather provocative thought, where China might go with this and what the status of these two blocks will be and how this is going to play out, uh, as we are like to do on this show, uh, we're going to take a little break. There's a lot more to think about and a lot more to talk about. Join us in just a moment after a little jazz. We're back. Uh, we were discussing, uh, Stephen, you, you were talking about the, the, this formation of two different blocks and how all of this plays into 
ultimately Chinese military thinking. Could you could you pick up on that thought again and just uh, refresh us and bring us up to speed again where you were before our break? Okay, uh, just uh, briefly because I, I'd like to hear uh, more of what Charles said about this uh, uh, this other option, ah. uh, more progressive option. Um, it's uh, it seems to me uh, that one of Biden's uh, President Biden's real accomplishments. I mean, there's no question about it. Uh, he single-handedly uh, reinvigorated NATO, mm. and uh, you know, it occurred to me the other day that uh, we don't talk about this, but Trump's complicity in strengthening Putin's confidence mm. worldview is absolutely unbelievable. It's his last parting gift. Another thing that no one seems to talk about much it's, anymore. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And um, the more one thinks about it, you know, with uh, overriding his intelligence advisors and, and so on, and his, uh, uh, I don't know, subordination to uh, his deference to... Uh, to Putin, uh, this had to have had an impact on his view of the United States, mm. uh, Putin's view of the, uh, of the United States. But anyway, uh, that has been counteracted, I think, pretty clearly uh, by Biden. I also think that helped uh, uh, create, his, create Putin's underestimations regarding the resistance to his invasion. Yeah. In any Biden's reinvigoration of NATO, uh, the amount of aid that uh, uh, his administration organized, and his uh, response to the Chinese uh, in terms of uh, this sort of competition over uh, semiconductors and what's called the chip war, on the one hand, and his open... Uh, support, extension of support to Taiwan. This is uh, this is pretty uh, this is pretty serious. And on top of that, the response to the balloon controversy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you put all this together, and you can see uh, Xi Jinping uh, looking out at the world and thinking, "Wow, there's really no other power." even medium-sized power that can help us contest American hegemony. And the question is whether that view or the more sensible view, which Charles laid out, uh, will predominate. Charles? Hey, I pick up on that for a second? Or yes, can... of course, of course. I see Biden, or at least the national security hawks in his administration, as driving China into the willing arms of Putin. They are doing everything they can to stoke uh, a marriage du jour, a convenient alliance of interests, in the time-honored cliche that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm. Mm. And... Um, I don't think this, I think the Chinese are too canny to be caught for long in that trap. Maybe. Because their global geopolitical interests, while they certainly include um, Russian natural resources, 
they're diversified in a way that Russia is not, meaning Russia's reliance on the Chinese and Indian markets can only go so far so long, whereas the Chinese have a diversified investment scheme that involves much of Africa, Latin America, and the Chinese-speaking areas of Southeast Asia. Now, to pick up on the other side of the story, the more negative side, um, I think this is a perilous moment in world history. Mm. I think this could very easily spiral out of control mm. on both sides. Yeah. All you need is an errant missile being launched by That's intent right. or yeah. accident from Poland to strike and kill a significant number of Russians. All you need is um, a launch by Ukraine by accident or design into a population center of Russia. And Putin's claim that NATO, through its proxy, Ukraine, uh, is out, at least at the minimum, for regime change, which it is in Russia, absolutely clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps to overturn the Russian state as a whole. In other words, mm -hmm. the existential threat which Putin keeps chanting as a refrain to his admirers, or at least those who won't actively oppose him, uh, because they feel that. Putin is a canny master of the black arts, of disinformation. That was his training in, in the KGB, and he and his advisors are very skilled at it. They know what pulls at the heartstrings of the Russian people, and that is the fear of a Western invasion which would be an existential threat to the Slavic civilization with the Russian face. And this is what motivates Russians to enlist. Uh, once they get to the front, they have a blackening of the, of the lens when they see what's actually going on, but he doesn't care about that. He's cared about what motivates hundreds of thousands of Russians through fear or, or, uh, or bribes to, to go to the front. And if they die, well, that's their problem. Uh, but the existence of the Russian state is absolutely central to understanding the motivation of Russia in this war. And they consider Ukraine, on false historical grounds, but nonetheless, they consider Ukraine to be an extension, an integral part of the Russian community. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there's an identity that links Slavic peoples together that Russia uses cleverly uh, to manipulate its own people, at least not to oppose what it's doing. And right. if that identity is existentially threatened for real by rockets red glore from, or, 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 or from mm. uh, a NATO member or Ukraine, that's when it could escalate out of control. And that's what must be stopped at all costs, which is why I do not support unlimited military aid without strings Right. by NATO to Ukraine. If, if the goal, if the immediate goal is stopping hostilities, I mean, can we agree that that is, that's the first goal? What has to happen first? Or, or what, are, what are the three things or the four things that you have to have first? You said that Donbras and, and, and Crimea are off the table. That's it. We can't even touch that. Or it'll be a separate negotiation for the Donbras and whatever. I but, didn't say that. Steve said that. All right, Stephen. What yeah. has to happen first? 
What I, the first thing with any negotiation is a recognition on both sides that they have to come to the table. And this sounds like something very, you know, self-evident. No, not, not these days, not with these guys, no. And in the first instance, what that means is that both leaders recognize, for, perhaps for different reasons, that um, what is generally now become, uh, coming to be considered the outcome of this, which is a stalemate, uh, almost like Charles mentioned uh, World War One. that's right, almost like trench warfare, mm. where or uh, what Trotsky called uh, neither war nor peace, uh, which in which he basically, you don't have any peace negotiations, you just have things sort of paralyzed or frozen on the battlefield. This, I think, for both sides would be a disaster, but I think for both leaders, it's sort of looking as if that might be something they are willing to accept, for better or worse. For Ukraine, the mistake in that view and I, is one of the things that could drive it to the table, which is that the amount of aid that it's going to, that it demands, this can't go on forever. Uh, leftist critics are, uh, you know, we've, uh, the United States, are, States has already spent twice what it, uh, the amount, uh, twice the funds it wasted in, in Afghanistan mm. on this war. We're going to be reaching a trillion dollars relatively, uh, relatively soon. Now, left, uh, left critics are grumbling about funding a proxy war and the profits of the military-industrial complex. Uh, on the right, Republicans are uh, clearly, or at least the extremist wing of the Republican Party, is clearly embracing isolationism and seeking to cut off aid entirely. Yep. Uh, and uh, if you like... Uh, there are two other things. One, Ukraine is really a very low priority among uh, among voters, which is rarely taken into account. I just heard one uh, Ukrainian pundit, literally before uh, coming on the show, say that he was shocked at how interest in the war was fading uh, among Americans, and that it was just becoming another part of the military landscape. Ironically, this would be a disaster for both nations, but it would actually be quite useful for the leadership. Hmm. You know, I mean, that's sort of the uh, the dialectical irony. So that's the first thing they got to be willing to uh, to sit down. The second thing is they have to be willing to recognize that the war can't be won, and figure out ways of uh, dealing with that. The third thing would be um, Russia needs an exit strategy for uh, areas other than uh, Crimea, while Ukraine, on the other hand, needs some way of symbolically guarantee guaranteeing its sovereignty, which ironically is being undermined insofar as it's reliant on ex uh, economically and militarily on external force. The 
final piece is that um, what you would call a, a rough framework is accepted before negotiations begin. In other words, not the more sophisticated issues like uh, uh, the Donbass or the more complicated issues like the Donbass and so on, yeah. but some very basic, uh, the basic framework for negotiations. Those four uh, preconditions are necessary in order to go forward, I think. Is there a chance of... Uh... Do you, can you imagine them uh, coming into play any time uh, in the foreseeable future? Charles? Uh, tomorrow, Steve, no. no. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah. In the foreseeable future, yeah. if the aid starts to become compromised, if China uh, holds back in its support of Russia, uh, there are a lot of ifs involved. But one thing's clear. I, I should have actually added one other thing, which I think Charles would agree with. The mainstream media in the West has been absolutely irresponsible, in my view. This is just a celebration of Ukraine and the, the kind of demonization of Russia, which, you know, is engaged in a barbaric war. I totally agree with that. But the kind of demonization that's taking place doesn't help matters. And... Critics such as Charles uh, or myself, who are, I think, relatively responsible, are simply completely excluded from the mainstream dialogue. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, and also amazing is uh, either you have military uh, hawks, like, uh, uh, like Charles uh, mentioned, or you have people who, I mean, reporters and commentators. Uh, I sort of like Erin uh, Burnett, but uh, I mean, the ignorance that's been portrayed on uh, and the lack of sophistication that's uh, exhibited on CNN and MSNBC are unbelievable. This is not to speak about the the Russian bent of uh, Fox. <laughs> so I think that has to actually be mitigated as well. You you seem to be you seem to be uh, suggesting that we have to go through a uh, a socio uh, reorientation just in how yeah. we view and and report this stuff, and that's getting in the way of allowing those four yeah. those four things to that, that's 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 a big ask, Stephen. Yeah, and as Yogi Berra said, it's deja vu all over again. The same thing happened with the Vietnam War, yeah, right. yeah. the Iraq yeah. Wars, the Afghanistan Wars. The media industrial military complex is so uh, univocal in its portrayal of good guys and bad guys that there's no subtlety, there's no gray zone, which means there's no room precisely. for negotiation or nuance in their reporting. That, precisely. And there's no sense that compromise is necessary. Stephen, no, you... because we're going to win. Because well, we're going to win. Say both we're sides, yes. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't yeah. in Vietnam. We didn't in Korea. We didn't in Afghanistan. We didn't in Iraq. And it's virtually impossible in Ukraine as well. I agree with that. That's, wow. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm just uh, imagining a, a whole bunch of people in media on, you know, in CNN and MSNBC having a very hard swallow on that particular uh, set of thoughts really, over there. Yeah. It's really disgraceful. I yeah. mean, uh, you know, especially after, uh, after Iraq. I mean, uh, these guys should know better if, if they're responsible journalists. They really should know better. There's no excuse for this. They can at least have some uh, critics, Charles or whoever, who know what they're talking. Uh, I mean, it's it's really unbelievable. I take it's it either. In their, it's not in their economic or ideological interest to do so unless the tide uh, swings the other way. Yeah. Unless the circumstances on the ground militate the inclusion of previous dissenters who are now uh, wise men like Rubini over the economic financial crisis of 2007-2008. Nobody listened to him or others in 2007-2008. And then five or ten years later, he's celebrated as a forecaster, as a Cassandra who got things right. Well, the same thing with Vietnam, the same thing with Afghanistan and so on, and it's happening all over again because the mainstream uh, avenues of communication, as Chomsky and Herman pointed out 40 years ago, are dominated by corporate tycoons who want to portray the world in good and bad terms, with us being the good guys and the Ruskies being the bad guys. Mm. Charles, I, I just want to add one thing, though. It's not just the, the, the mainstream uh, media. I, I'll say this quite openly. I usually or I often publish journalism but with reader-supported news and various other websites that are left-wing websites. I mean, uh, self-proclaimed uh, websites who are certainly not rich and not funded uh, by... Uh, serious sponsors. I can't publish there anymore. Huh. It was made it was made clear to me that I can publish almost anything I want, but not Ukraine. And that's true also with uh, uh, Europe with uh, one or two very well-known magazines in uh in Europe, whose editors are very good friends of mine and quite brilliant people. But Ukraine, they will not take a critical perspective. I have you know, a sense it's not, that... It's not just the funding. Uh, it's, it's also an ideological... I, I don't know, uh, an ideological um, fetish. Uh, yeah, this is the good war, so to speak, right. for this generation, like World War II was for a previous generation. Yeah, that's, I think, the right way to put it. And, uh, you know, and uh, it's really, you know, in a certain way, media like Fox, okay, even mainstream, uh, you know, centrist media like Ukraine, ugh, less okay, but understandable. But when it comes to MSNBC or really left-wing uh, organs, it's just, uh, it, it's, uh, it's disgraceful. 
in my in, in my view. If you guys are correct, and I'm going back to the four points, Stephen, that you brought up earlier, and if that's the only way this is going to end, ultimately, then at some point it would stand to reason, reason not always being what dictates action, but it would stand to reason that people like yourselves in positions like yours and the type of reason that you're discussing is where a lot of people are going to have to go or at least incorporate points of views like yours into the conversation because we're not going to solve this or end it or Ukraine and Russia are not going to solve it and end it going about it the way everybody's back is up right now and with the apparent uh, uh, disservice being done by much of the American media. You guys are going to have to come in there. But if you can't be brought in by them at least uh, we can get your words out there uh, as a starting point, if not a starting point, certainly a midway point. Both of you have been out there for quite some time on this. Stephen, I'm going to put up, I want to put up uh, on, our, uh, on our podcast feed, I'd like to put the link up that you mentioned early on in the show to a document, to a position that you mentioned, do you recall? And I, yeah. The OSCE, yeah. Yes. I'd it's, like also on, it's also on our website. Let me give you... Uh, it's a sim this is more simple. www.icdd.info. Uh, yeah. Okay, we're gonna but we're gonna include that uh, on the uh, on the write up on the podcast feed so that people will be able to go to that as well. Since That's we obviously the whole don't thing. yeah on the yeah. Uh, Gentlemen, <laughs> well, a year a year and change later, uh, it's it's a different world. It's the same world. It's. Uh, this kind of thing we're not we're not solving. Uh, we are we are directing. We are suggesting. Uh, it, it all makes tremendous sense. And I uh, I know I'm educated by listening to you guys and learning an awful lot about this. I trust our listeners are finding themselves in the same position. And I hope if you're uh, if you're uh, really interested, this is going to be just the first of several times that you'll be playing this particular interview. There's an awful lot of stuff in there that uh, is worth going back to and referencing. Uh, once again, my guests today are Dr. Stephen Bronner uh, from Rutgers University and Dr. Charles Webble, who was with uh, with us, coming from us from Prague. Um, much to think about, uh, and as we are want to do here at MS... Well, no, no, we're not at MSN. No! No, my God, no! Oh, my God, they took me over! I didn't realize it was happening! No, no, I, I, I think I jest. Um, as we say here at Center Left Radio, and as we say at the conclusion of this uh, Noble Hearts Forum, uh, thank you for listening, and... Uh, Digest it all with a little jazz.
You've been listening to a special Noble Hearts Forum edition of Center Left Radio, the progressive voice of hope, politics, and jazz. My name is Richard Gazer, and thank you once again for being part of today's show. My guests today have been Dr. Charles Webel and Dr. Stephen Bronner. We've been talking about how to bring the Russian aggression in Ukraine to an end, perhaps in ways that haven't been discussed, at least not sufficiently. There's a lot of information worth listening to, maybe more than once. 